0: Dear Heavenly Father, you tell us in your word that you give us the sun and moon for days and years, seasons and signs and it's a reminder Father as we come to the end of a year like we do now that we count down time not count up according to your word that you've given us these markers so that we might be cognizant of the fact that time does not go forever not in its current form not in the world the way it is and that when the Time is right, Father. Your Lord, our Lord, will return. And that when the time is right, the kingdom will appear. And that when the time is right, we will be glorified. And so in this seemingly concrete and permanent world, we know, Father, we are anything but permanent in this form, and that this world will pass away, and that each year that passes is one year less before the end. And so I ask, Father, that as we enter this this time of year when we reflect, we reflect on what has been and what will be, and often we make commitments one to another on what we can do differently and how we will live better, etc I pray, Father, that you would cause our hearts to turn to the ultimate purpose in this countdown, yeah. that we live to please you, that our life reflects you, and that we are prepared for the coming judgment so that we may stand before you and receive that thing that we all wish to hear so dearly, that we have pleased you and that. We have done well. And I do also ask, Father, that the the countdown of this year would also increase our urgency and increase our energy toward the things you've given us to do. Like a student who might be struggling and rushing to finish an assignment before the due date, I I pray that we would feel that same kind of urgency to complete what we've begun, to be ready for that day, to not let it catch us by surprise. And that's why we enjoy the study you've given us, Father, in First Corinthians, because we understand it to be a, a tool that you will use to prepare us for that day, to guide us into all righteousness. So I pray, Lord, that what we learn today and then the weeks to come and in the year to come, would do that good work in our heart. Direct us, Father, toward it with a sincerity of purpose and with a heart to obey. Give us ears to hear. Take distractions off our heart and mind. Give us eyes for eternity, Father. And let the word that is spoken today come from you through your spirit, though it comes out of my mouth. Father, let it let it be directed in such a way that it, it is free from the error that I might introduce and that it is rested entirely on the truth of what your Spirit has provided. And let it be heard in that way as well. In Jesus name, I pray. Amen. We're in this section. I enjoy so much on Liberty, the three chapter section that is a teaching on the proper exercise of Christian liberty. We did chapter 8 last week, and chapter 8 really set up this topic. Paul is on this topic because the church in Corinth had asked him to render judgment on this matter, to give an answer to a certain question. And though we don't have the question, we can fairly assume it. It seems to have been something along the lines of whether Christians may eat meat that has been sacrificed to a pagan idol. So, The church didn't come to him asking about liberty. The church came asking about a very specific topic. The church wondered about two things. The church wondered about whether it was still acceptable for a Christian to attend pagan worship services in the local pagan temple. And then secondly, even if you didn't do that, was it acceptable for a Christian to buy, to purchase the meat that was left over? From these services and was sold in the local market, knowing that that meat had been sacrificed to an idol when it had been used in the temple. Could the Christian fairly do these things? Well, Paul, as we looked at last week, Paul has attacked these issues, these questions, not by going directly to the heart of them, not initially, though we will get there. Instead, he's decided to teach on a much larger principle which then gives or equips the church with what they need to know in order to answer the specific issue and any other specific issue that might come along of a like kind. And that larger principle is the issue of Christian liberty, or we would say the freedom that we have in Christ. In chapter 8, last week, Paul explained that a Christian cannot exercise personal liberty or freedom with disregard for how our behavior influences or affects others around us. If our freedoms injure others, then we are sinning, according to Scripture. Likewise, if our lifestyle choices lead other immature Christians to violate their own conscience, then we sin as well in that case. And even worse, we're leading others to sin, to stumble by our influence in their lives. We have to concern ourselves with others as we think about what we will do with our Christian liberty. And understanding that principle is the most important goal of Paul's teaching in these three chapters. Because even if he had set them straight just on the issue of what they do with this meat, well, what were they going to do the next time they encounter a situation in which Christian liberty is running afoul with cultural norms? What would they do? They'd be lost. They wouldn't have any guideposts. So the main goal is to equip them with an understanding of basic principles and basic biblical truth. And through that equipping, then they're going to have what they need not only to solve this problem, but to solve future ones as well. By the way, that is the heart of biblical education. The point of teaching the Bible, the whole point of a ministry that tries to go through the Bible verse by verse is not because we want the minutia of the trivia of what happened in Paul's day to a certain church and a certain place and a certain time. That's just the backdrop from within which God can give us basic principles of truth that transcend time and place. So if you come out of chapters 8, 9, and 10 knowing what to do with meat, sacrifice to idols, and nothing more, then you really haven't learned anything. If, on the other hand, we leave these chapters with an awareness of how we exercise Christian liberty, then we'll be good with meat, sacrifice to idols, or rock music, or what length of skirt to wear, or whatever other issue might come along our way that has to do with liberty in the context of culture. So as we leave chapter eight, Paul summed up the principle that he was trying to teach at the very end with the last verse of the chapter. And he does it in a simple but powerful personal statement. And just look at the last verse of chapter eight. Paul says in verse 13, therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, well, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. What he says is this. Using the subject of meat, sacrificed to idols, as an example, here's what he says, and we can generalize it this way. If enjoying my Christian liberty leads my brother or sister into sin, then I will gladly forego that liberty out of love for that brother or sister. We should be willing to set aside our Christian liberties because our higher goal is not the exercise of our liberty, but the demonstration of love for God and for the love we have for our neighbors. That's our real goal in this. So there are going to be times when exercising that liberty is a sign of love and there are going to be different circumstances where withholding my liberty is a sign of love. I need to be discerning on those two things. So we can't make the pursuit of liberty our highest goal. Now, as we move into chapter 9, Paul is going to continue to challenge the Corinthian church to think differently in this way, to think differently about their liberties. And the reason they have to think differently is because Greeks in Corinth had a different mindset when it came to these things. Greek culture respects strength Greek culture respected status. Think about the fact that the Olympics began there. Greek culture had these values that in many ways are in conflict with Christian values. Not in all cases, but but often they conflict with Christian values of humility or self-sacrifice. And so in this situation... The Greek culture was actually working against good biblical maturity in that city. So Paul is working hard to explain why it is that the Greek church must be willing to set aside Greek values and in their place accept biblical values. And in chapter nine, you're going to find Paul working to use himself as an example of how this looks, while at the same time defending his authority once again. Remember, we started at the beginning of this letter with Paul working to defend his authority against those who would critique him as not being apostolic. Well, he's back at it again here. You'll notice that in chapter 9. So let's start in chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. Paul begins by asking, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Look at how he starts in this chapter. Did you notice his defensive posture? It sounds right away like he's having to defend himself. And certainly he feels he needs to. And he does that with a four-part question or four rhetorical questions. First, Paul asks, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? He asks. He's asking the church to consider his own rights and his own privileges as an apostle. Was Paul not free, he says, to enjoy Christian liberty like the rest of the church? And, of course, the answer rhetorically is yes, he would have had all the freedom anyone else would have had as a Christian. More than that, Paul says, am I not an apostle? Which would mean, do I not also have even greater liberties, even greater privileges than, say, someone who was not an apostle? And the question is setting up two purposes in this chapter. He wants to demonstrate first that as a Christian and as an apostle, he had certain privileges that were due him his right or his liberty to enjoy those things. And he's going to show how he did not take advantage of the very things that he had a right to because he had love for the church and wanted to show that love by not burdening them in some cases and not using all that his liberty provided. What's ironic about that is that his willingness to forego those rights had become the cause for some in the church to make the claim that he wasn't truly an apostle. They were saying, well, a real apostle would have done these things. He chose not to. That must tell us that he's not really an apostle. So before Paul can use his own example to teach the church, he first has to show how his choice didn't indict him. It didn't lessen his authority. It was actually something he had a choice to do. Once he's made that claim with his authority intact, then he'll move to the point of using himself as an example. Yes, did I not see the Lord... Didn't he pass the qualification to be considered an apostle, which is that you've been visited and appointed personally by the Lord Jesus Christ? And the answer is yes. On the road to Damascus, he saw the Lord. And if that weren't enough to demonstrate his authority, then he points to the founding of the church. And he says, You are the seal of my authority. This is the first Gentile church in the world. This church was founded out of nothing. Paul walks into Corinth. There's nothing before he shows up. When he leaves, they're the largest church in the Western Hemisphere is now present in Corinth. How do you explain that? This is supernatural. This is proof that he is an apostle, that God was working in him to bring about the miracle of this church. So Paul says, even if somewhere else in the world someone might doubt my authority as an apostle, you of all churches know better. I founded you in a way that proves that I was working with the power of God. When he says we, he's referring to the time that he and Barnabas lived and worked Amongst the Corinthians and what they did when they moved into Corinth was they made a decision to forego certain rights and privileges they had as apostles setting aside their own comfort setting aside their own ease at times and even setting aside their status as apostles choosing to live in a way that would not reflect their prominence or their their authority so as to be more effective in ministry in that city to put less burden on the church and to serve as an example for them about how Christian living is supposed to look. Keep in mind, they're in a very status-oriented culture. Can you imagine what might have transpired in the church in its early formative days if the apostles had shown up wearing their apostleship on their sleeves, so to speak, showing their status, showing their importance and their power? Wouldn't it have been likely that that church, given its cultural influence, would have picked up on those details and mimicked them? and that status and power and authority would have become something that that church would have sought for amongst themselves. We've already seen in chapters 1 and 2 that they're busy creating divisions, saying, I'm of Paul and you are of Apollos. They already had that tendency. So Paul intentionally diminished his power and his authority to make it easier to blend in and to set an example for the church. And throughout the time they were in Corinth, we're going to learn in this chapter that they refused material support. What we mean is, Though they had the right to expect others to pay for their living, they continued working to earn their own living. So Paul is using himself as an example of how one would set aside liberty out of love for another believer. And he refused certain privileges in order to avoid putting those burdens on them. Look what he says next in defending both his apostleship and his choice not to use those liberties. He says in verse three, my defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? He says, do apostles not have a right to eat and drink or get married? This is a very clever statement he makes, very clever argument. Paul's critics had pointed to his refusal to accept ministry income as proof that he was not an apostle. And instead of attacking that accusation first, Paul attacks something that's even more obvious, even more appropriate. He says, do I have a right to eat? Do I have a right to drink? Now, who's going to say no to that? Everyone has a right to eat. Everyone has a right to drink. And so Paul begins with something that is very certainly obvious for all Christians, not just for apostles. And these things don't come or go based on our authority. Paul refused to eat certain things at certain times. Refused to drink certain things at certain times in order to make more appealing to certain groups, particularly the Jew. He also chose to forego marriage, which we've already seen him discuss in chapter 7. We know he did that as well as a way of improving his opportunity to work in ministry. But now he asks the question, do I have a right to those things as every Christian does, just as the Lord's brothers did, just as Cephas himself took a wife? By the way, that's proof in and of itself that the Catholic tradition that Peter was the first pope and that the popes are never married and that that's the way it's supposed to be in the scriptures right there You see clear evidence that this stuff is not biblical. It's complete nonsense and complete tradition There's nothing wrong with being married. If you're a minister Paul chose not to be while Peter chose to be but back to the point Paul had the right to these things to eat to drink. He had the right to marry And so when he chose to do otherwise, you cannot say that that somehow diminishes his authority so then he moves to verse six, to the heart of his critics' accusations. In verse six, he says, Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? Now what Paul is saying now is, As I have said about food and drink and marriage now let me say the same thing concerning my choice, Paul's choice, not to receive financial support from the church. Paul asks if only he and Barnabas are without the right to stop working. Paul now has made clear that he qualifies as an apostle, even as his critics say, no, you must receive our entitlement if you are to be considered an apostle. And Paul says, so only Barnabas and I, we are the only ones who have this requirement that you levy on us. We're only going to be considered an apostle to you. If we receive support, we lose the chance to be considered an apostle because we choose to keep working. Where did that requirement come from, is Paul's point. That financial support was something that he and Barnabas had just as much a right to expect as anyone else, though they chose not to receive it. Now at this point in the letter, Paul begins to substantiate that giving support to ministers is appropriate. This is not his main point in the letter. Paul is defending his choice not to receive support. But at the same time, Paul is saying my choice was just that an exercising of my liberty, but it doesn't make it a rule. It's not a rule that all should have it. It's not a rule that none should have it. It's a liberty. But that is not to say that our requirement to give support is a liberty. It is a right of the minister to accept or not. It is not a liberty for the congregation as to whether they support. I want you to understand as I go into this, the motive of Paul and also, frankly, my motive. Paul uses three examples from real life, from agrarian life. His first example is of a soldier who enlists in military service. That soldier expects their income from that service, right? And all the needs that they have in life are to be met, more or less, by what they do in service to their country in the military. You wouldn't expect a soldier who's using his full-time capacity to serve in defense of his country to have to get a side job at Walmart just to pay his bills. And I don't mean because he isn't making enough. I mean, you wouldn't expect them to have to work somewhere else to earn their living and then volunteer their time as, as someone in the military would do, right? We wouldn't expect that. If we did expect that, their focus would be so misdirected at their income that they wouldn't be a very good soldier. What kind of defense would we get out of that kind of arrangement? The point is it works against our own best interests. If we were to live in that sort of situation. The second example of the farmer with a vineyard. Well, a farmer who's raising grapes would never think to go buy grapes from the local store, would they? What kind of farmer would buy grapes when they're raising them on their own land? Instead, they expect to be able to obtain what they need from what they're raising, from what they're sowing and raising in the field. And then finally, a shepherd would never purchase milk in like fashion. They obtain the milk from their own flock. They have it amongst their own sheep. So here are the three principles Paul is espousing. And these guide our understanding of how we support those in ministry around us. First, we should want the minister, the pastor, the teacher, the the Sunday school teacher, whoever we are trying to put into full-time ministry around us, we want their undivided attention focused on ministry because it's to our benefit if they are. Just like we want soldiers focused 100% on defending our nation. It might save us a few bucks in taxes, if we ask soldiers to work at Walmart, but how prepared are they gonna be? And it can also certainly help save us a few bucks if our ministers are always spending their time outside of the church making their money, but that means they're spending less time working with us and spending time in the Bible and doing the things that we value. So it's a trade off, you can't get something for nothing. That's the issue. Secondly, the second example of the farmer, that illustrates that the work of ministry should be the source of a minister's supply. A minister invests his time and energy in growing up the field, so to speak, and that energy then should return itself to them in some portion as a blessing for their labor. And if a vineyard owner never reaped the harvest of his work, it's likely that he's eventually going to seek for better ground, to use the analogy properly, right? If a farmer keeps planting and never gets any good grapes out of that ground, they go elsewhere. Thirdly, the example of the shepherd illustrates that the supply comes from within their own flock. On any given hill, you would find many flocks, many shepherds, but each shepherd received the milk from their own flock to meet their own needs. No one expected the shepherd to go shopping with the other shepherds to find milk in their flock. So not wanting to rest on those three examples, Paul now moves into the scriptural point. And in verse 8 through 11, Paul says, I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake, it was written because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sow spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So to finish the thought using scripture, he says, I'm not just going to rest on human wisdom here. I want you to know that what I'm teaching comes from the Bible, from God's word. And it comes specifically out of Deuteronomy 25, 4. That's what he's quoting. And in that passage, we find that it is written that a farmer in Israel may not muzzle his ox while that ox is threshing. Now, not many of you have ox. Not many of you thresh anymore, I know. So let's understand the context of this analogy. Threshing is the process of separating the grain seeds from the stock and the husk that held it. And the best way to accomplish that in Jesus' day was to lay the stalks of grain on the ground on a hard floor, on some kind of hard, flat, wooden surface. And then you take a large, heavy animal like an ox, and you would lead it to trample over the grain. And now the grain seeds were strong enough that they wouldn't be pulverized by the treading of the ox. But all of that other stuff that's around the grain, the, the husk and all of that, would be rubbed off by the movement of the hooves. And so eventually you'd have grain seed mixed in with loose chaff, And then that could be winnowed, which is the process of picking it all up and throwing it in the air and letting the wind carry the chaff off and the seed that's heavier falls down. Eventually you get nothing but seed out of the process. So the ox would be tied to a pole and then the ox would be led in a circle around this pole for hours at a time. Walking and walking and as it's treading there's ladies or other workers around throwing the fresh grain into the Area where the treading is happening and it would tread over that And then as it's on the other side of the circle Someone would gather that out of the way and they would throw the next batch on and this animal just keeps walking and treading and walking and treading Obviously if you do this long enough you get hungry as an ox because you're working and you're not stopping so to keep the ox energized for the work They'd allow the ox to pause whenever it felt like it and bend down and start to eat some of the grain. I mean, think about the ox. It's hungry and it sees food all around it. Right. So the natural thing is to put its nose down and start eating. Now, what if a farmer was so greedy that they valued every last grain of those seeds so much so that when they saw the ox bending down, they thought to themselves, I'm not going to let that ox eat my grain. And to stop it from doing so, he might put a muzzle on the ox. So now the farmer's thinking, that'll show that ox. Now that ox just works, and I don't have to lose any of my grain. Well, what happens if you do that? At some point, that ox isn't working anymore. It's too tired. It's too weak. It stops. The irony, of course, is that what the farmer wanted so much he lost by his pennywise, pound-foolish mentality. That's why in the law, the Lord commanded that the sons of Israel could not muzzle their oxen if the ox was threshing. That was actually a law. They could not do that. According to the law. And Paul asks in verse 10, was the chief concern that God had the ox? Was this all about saving the ox? Was God so worried about whether the ox had a full tummy that he made this law? And Paul says, no, that law had nothing to do with the ox and had everything to do with the sons of Israel. Because the wisdom of God understood that the best thing for the people was that the animal be allowed to eat some trivial amount of grain so that the process of threshing could continue unabated, which is a good thing for the people of Israel, that they would get their work done. And when you really consider it, of course, starving the animal for the sake of such a small amount of grain was a completely foolish thing to do. There is no way that that animal could put even a dent in the amount of grain that was going to be produced by his work. So it's a very pennywise pound foolish thing, as the saying goes. More importantly, Paul says this law was actually intended to model for us, for all men, a principle that extends far beyond the issue of farming and and grain. And he now uses it where it was intended to be used concerning our support for ministers. And that goes back to the law and to the priesthood, but it extends forward today into the church. Like an ox, a workman should expect to give his work in the hope of receiving something in benefit in return from that work. The workmen share in what they produce, in other words. And it's not a burden that they share in it. It's their right. More than just a right, Paul in verse 11 is saying, it's to your benefit. And I know it's easy for this to sound like I'm talking about me because I can't avoid it. I'm standing up here. I'm the guy who has to deliver the message, right? I get that. But I'm just trying to present what's on the page. The truth is that the individual impact of the support that's required to keep someone working in ministry is relatively slight on a per person basis. Very small amount was given to the ox to make a very large amount for the people. Similarly on an individual basis our support to people in ministry wherever that is here or in some other ministry is a relatively small amount, but when it's cumulatively added to that individual it's enough for that person to do what they need to do. And in return we get an infinite amount of spiritual blessing out of their work and meeting our needs spiritually. It's a fantastic bargain. When you think of it in that sense, and he makes this application in verse 11, he says, if he worked to produce spiritual benefit in that church, then certainly he should have the right to receive a modest material response from them. But in the next section, he goes to the point now of his refusal to accept that support. Why, if it is a right, why, if it is a commandment of scripture that we'd be willing to support? Why was it that Paul refused it? Now, Paul is ready to explain that. And use himself as an example for liberty. Look at verses 12 through 15. Paul says, If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will not cause hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. But I have used none of these things. And I'm not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case, for it would be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast an empty one. Paul asked the church, if there are other lesser ministers in the world who have received your support from time to time, and it was true, the Corinthian church was relatively wealthy, and you'll see in some of the other letters Paul writes, particularly in 2 Corinthians, Paul puts a pressure on them to help fund the needs of churches in Macedonia and in Jerusalem because they had so much wealth. Paul says, look, if others have a right to some of your support, well, wouldn't we, Barnabas and I, have even more right to it, being that we founded the church and that we are apostles? Obviously, the answer... Is yes, And then in verse 12, he says, We chose not to take that support. Despite having every right and more so, we chose not to take it. Why? We didn't want to burden you. Paul says they chose that path because they didn't want it to be a hindrance to the mission of the gospel. Now, how ironic is it today that many have tried to use the gospel for financial gain? And here you see the example out of the apostles where they did exactly the opposite. They forego it because it allowed for greater Receptiveness to the ministry and you can imagine maybe some reasons why this would be true in Corinth Perhaps Paul felt that if he had asked for support from the very beginning of his ministry the Greek church might have misunderstood his motives That's been my concern everywhere. I go One of the reasons why verse-by-verse ministry goes the world over without charging anybody a dime for anything is I don't want anyone to Misunderstand our motives Whatever loss we might have in financial terms in this world will pale in comparison to the spiritual and the eternal gain That will come from our willingness to do it this way. That's my conviction Perhaps in Paul's day there were other false teachers running around like we have today proclaiming the gospel as a means to gain. And so Paul was trying to distance himself from those men. That's the second reason our ministry doesn't charge anything. I want to do everything I can to distance myself from the people who spend their time doing this stuff. Whatever the reason, he sets aside his rights out of love. And then in verses 13 and 14, Paul reiterates once again, service to God is an honorable profession. It carries with it a natural expectation that those who benefit from that service would support those who work for them. In fact, he goes a step further in verse 14, and he makes a command. Paul says that the Lord directed that those who proclaim the gospel get their living from the gospel. And in the Greek, the way this is phrased, it isn't a command to the minister. It's a command to the congregation. You get that sense in the English when it says that a minister is to get, receive, in other words, their income from Their ministry, it is not that he has to rely on it, but he needs to receive it So the congregation is required by the lord to make available gifts of support to support that minister But not in all cases will the minister necessarily choose to rely on it or to live on it For whatever the needs of the gospel are dictate what the minister should do whatever is best And then we finish in verse 15 paul reminds the church. He never made use of these things. He purposely left money on the table The choice to cease working is a privilege every minister has. In fact, I've modeled myself to a large extent on this area of Scripture because I believe in what Paul is demonstrating here, and it is my privilege to do so. It's not a requirement that I accept my income from a given place, but it is not to say that the church is not meanwhile obligated to provide support as if there was no other choice for me. My choice is the same as Paul's, not to burden the church. At the size and at the financial level of this church, it would be a serious burden. In fact, it would be literally an impossible burden, from what I can tell, that the church choose to take on a whole family's income by the means of what we have provided. At least that's where we've been for the last couple of years, certainly. Now, will it always be that way? I hope not. It would be nice to think that we could grow to the point where we could fund the income for those who serve us, and perhaps one day that would include me. But in the meantime, it would be self-destructive for me to choose to try to take something that's not easily available in the church. It would be counter to what we're trying to endeavor to do here with the word of God and for the sake of the gospel. However, if that becomes excuse for the congregation to say to itself, well, they don't need my money. The church doesn't have anyone that depends on me, so we don't have to make that sacrifice. Well, then we're missing the point of the of this command. The command is that the church have that heart to support continually because it is not in the best interests of any congregation to muzzle their ox in light of what the ox does for them. You could conceivably see a few days, years, weeks down the road, whatever it may be that this church is sufficiently able to provide and I'm able to accept and we take on that arrangement, then the opportunity for you to be ministered to goes up in a quantum leap. That would be a great thing for the church. It's in God's timing should that happen. But in the meantime, you won't get there overnight. There's no way for the church to say, well, we'll give nothing until he needs it. That doesn't actually happen in real life. And so one of the reasons I take any stipend at all has been out of a desire to continue at least some need to be met with the giving. So Paul reminds the church he never used it, But they had the obligation. He never used it out of a love for them. They make it available out of a love for their pastor. The benefits for him where he could be more effective in ministry, the benefits for the church in the long run is that they will have people helping them at the full-time capacity they need. It's good on both accounts. We need to see this as liberties from the point of view of the minister, but not from the point of view of our giving. That is an obligation we have to our own benefit. At whatever level the Lord asks. You can get a sense of how important this principle is when you consider Paul's last words in verse 15. He said he would rather die than have someone begin supporting him when he didn't want it. Well, that statement suggests that Paul knew he was going to be rewarded in the kingdom for his sacrifice, and he didn't want to lose that reward. He would rather be rewarded in the kingdom than take his reward here and now. So he says, I didn't just preach this to you so that you would start giving me money in verse 15 when he says he says i'm not writing these things so that you will make it done so in my case that's how i want to end this today for you i don't emphasize this for any reason other than it's on the page of scripture not so that you would suddenly change something you wouldn't otherwise feel convicted to do but the principle is i would rather not have anything and receive my reward in heaven than cajole someone into support that lets me live a more comfortable life here on earth those two have no comparison for anyone who understands eternity Let's go to prayer and we'll come back next week, finishing this chapter, understanding better what God is asking of the church and their liberties. And then into chapter 10, where Paul finishes this topic. Dear Lord, thank you, Father, for the reminder that we come to you every week expecting spiritual guidance. We come into this room and elsewhere knowing that you have the power to educate us, to mold us and conform us into the likeness of Christ, that you work through men and women to do that for our behalf. And that many of those from time to time will need our support. I pray, Father, that we will always have that generous heart, understanding that you expect us never to muzzle the ox. But then I also thank you, Father, that there are those who come to us from wherever, seeking to serve us without obligation and without burden, that their heart is directed toward love rather than toward earthly gain. Even as we see a world filled with those who would seek for gain, I know, Father, that there are still those you have called who do better. Thank you, Father, for that for the blessing it is to serve self-sacrificially. We ask, Father, that you continue to give us a heart to do the same for others and to let our liberties be guided by love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.